welcome to the City Speaking Podcast. The city speaks, you try to follow obedient, even the ones that... I think in this life, you have to be adventurous. The guy who sat in a government office in Whitehall all his life is not a desperately interesting man to talk to. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited. This is our first one that we're going to post, that we're posting up. And, um, well, let's see. Today, the podcast, the episode, it's with Andrew Long. So Andrew and I first met a few years back in Hong Kong. And uh, we bonded really early on. And, you know, we, we, you know, we talked a lot about the 80s and the 90s in Hong Kong. And we also talked about the fun things, you know, to do. You know, we talked about the nostalgic things that we experienced here during that time in Hong Kong. But also the struggles that come up when different cultures collide, you know, or join together. Andrew's story is not unlike many of the other young people in the 70s that made a decision to travel abroad and start a new life. Or indeed, you know, a lot of the guys that still I know now still have a lot of similar experiences, as we talk about in the podcast a bit. Um... You know, most things seem new and you need to adjust, you need to learn, you need to navigate. Andrew was, and still is, is an engineer. And for those of you that know anything about Hong Kong, engineering has clearly played a huge part in Hong Kong's massive growth. And that sort of kind of helped secure its place as a thriving international metropolis, if you will. And uh, Andrew's contributions to Hong Kong's infrastructure still stand today. You know, I chose Andrew as a first conversation to post because he was kind of the perfect person for me to talk to. He, We have enough shared cultural experience and enough difference in life experience to explore the past and the present and, you know, a bit about the future as well. You know, I thought it would be a great jumping off point for what this podcast is about. You know, I felt our conversation might be a blend of history, nostalgia, life experience, and a bit of wisdom as well. You know, and Andrew doesn't disappoint. Uh, what else do we do? We talked about the landmarks, some of, some of the things that Andrew worked on during this time here, or some of the things he witnessed uh, back then that were developing um, and that we now just sort of take for granted as existing out here. Uh, we talk about the red light district. What else? Uh, we even touch on Margaret Thatcher. That's right. You know, and how uh, how she affected his job. So, uh, <laughs> you know, anyway, uh, you know, there's a word that we use in Hong Kong, uh, for those of you that haven't spent much time here or don't know, guailo. Uh, that's the term. And, uh, you know, really it's a derogatory term for foreigner. Although it's common, commonly used uh, by a lot of people, including foreigners. It's sort of like, I guess, I don't know if saying it's their N-word is, uh, is the appropriate uh, comparison. But uh, you get the idea. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of it. You know, I think it smacks of racism. But anyway, we didn't explain it in the conversation. So I'm just letting you guys know now. If you don't know what it means, that's what it means. It's a derogatory term for, for foreigner. Anyway... Uh, what else we talk about? We talk about family. We talk about what it's like to marry a local girl, as he did, as you hear about. And later, you know, what it's like to have children and raising a beautiful family and how things have changed over the years for him. Of course, you know, back in 1997, the handover from Hong Kong back to China from Great Britain. We talk a bit about that as well. And we talk about friendships and the beauty of new life experiences. Um... So Andrew knew that I'd be coming over, um, and on that uh, English summer morning, that's right, uh, I was in the UK, and that's how we got to have this conversation. Uh, he brought down this hardback book, and the cover read, Hong Kong, 1978. Uh, and this is where we begin. So uh, anyway, without further ado, my conversation with Andrew Long in his lovely home in the Shropshire Hills, and uh, yes, it's raining in the background. The city speaks, you try to follow obedient, even the ones that don't... Well, you can't get one of those here. It's very special to Hong Kong, that. But that's what I mean, though, is like it was done as a sort of... I got to look into this now. But I reckon it was done partially. Like, the Brits were like, this is a good idea. Let, let, let's publish something for the public to kind of see and, and whatnot, right? Do you reckon? I suspect... You're probably right. But I suspect that those books were probably sold not exclusively to expats... But they would have been the only per- the only sort of person, people who would have bought those. Right. And of course, it's it's all in English as well. But so this is. Oh, you can get it in Chinese. Oh, you can. Okay. Oh yeah. So Hong Kong, nineteen seventy. Did you move in seventy eight or seventy seven or seventy six or when did you go to Hong Kong and how did you get to Hong Kong in the first place? It. It all happened in in late nineteen seventy seven. 
I was a young engineer. Uh, I wasn't particularly looking for work, but the Christmas of 1977-78, my parents went to Hong Kong because my sister and brother-in-law were staying there. Mark was a unit QS. He was working on um, Chimsai Chui Station. Mark is a mate like of yours. My brother-in-law. Oh, your brother-in-law. My okay. brother-in-law. Um, and so they were there for Christmas, and it was looking pretty bleak for me. So I decided to go. Okay. Um, and just before I went, a guy in the office said, oh, there's a job advertised in Hong Kong, Andrew, just up your street. So I looked into it. I phoned the, the number, which was in Victoria Street in London. I explained that I was going to Hong Kong, and they said, oh, well, you might as well be interviewed in Hong Kong then, Mr. Long. Well, that's what happened. And I really couldn't fail to get the job because everybody else was interviewed back in London. So I accepted the job and I started, I came back out in uh, late February, 1978. Was it just you and a suitcase or? It was me, uh, a suitcase and a trunk. Uh, Initially, I stayed with my sister in Clearwater Bay and then after a month, I had a small flat in Happy Valley in Yuxiao Street. Okay. Was it at that point the the race course was 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 there and everything? Oh yeah, yeah the race yeah. course was there. Um, the football club was the old football club. Mm. Uh, the jockey club stabling, which I assume it still is, was at the top of Happy Valley. Okay. What was it like? I mean, do you remember landing? And back then it would have been Kai Tak Airport. Exactly. So, which is which was famous, like for being tough to land in and everything. Do you remember that feeling of looking out and I remember it very well. I remember it very well because it was such a spectacular landing. We we came in uh, over Kowloon and you looked down and you could see you could see Kowloon, you could see the houses of the rooftops getting closer and closer and of right. course it was low rise. And then all of a sudden uh, the plane banked to starboard over Kowloon City. Um, something else which has obviously disappeared mm. over Kowloon City to, to come down and you look down at the starboard wingtip right? and it was the impression was it was in within feet of rooftops it right. wasn't of course but that's what you felt that's the impression and then you, yeah. you landed on you, you went straight out to the, <laughs> into the into the harbour and landed on that sort of peninsula of runway in like the heart of the city kind in the of, heart of the city you know. extraordinary landing and then once you got there, did you were you greeted or how did it was it like a sign, you know, Mr. Long and then No, no. I um got a cab. Oh that's right. My sister and brother in law were away. So I couldn't go to Clearwater Bay where they were living. Mm. So I had a couple of weeks in the um in the YMCA. Okay. Uh yes, next to the peninsula. Ah. And it was an old YMCA. You and know, of course, the, the old railway terminal was still there as well then. It was. It was. So which which went along the whole waterfront. Yeah. So gutted that they took that down, to be honest. But I, I, can, I understand why, because it's prime real estate, right? You're right along the Victoria well, Harbour. Of course, of course. A lot of people don't actually know that that's, they just go, oh, that's the old clock tower that was there. And they don't realize that that was the old. No, that was the old Hong, railway That was the old Hong Hom station or the old TST station, yeah, right? That's right. And of course, but really of course the, other, the other feature mm. of the harbour at that time was the jack-up barge for the MTR tunnel. That was going across the harbour then. I Say, say that again. So from where to where? From TST? Well, from Chimsa Chui mm-hmm. to um, Admiralty, when they were building that tunnel, they did it with a jack-up barge. And so... Explain what that is, because I'm not an engineer. I, I don't even know what that means. Okay. Um, to build the tunnel across the harbour, they floated out... Um, prefabricated tunnel units mm. okay they floated them out and then they have what's called a jack-up barge where you you bring the units into the barge and it then lowers them to the seabed on a pre-prepared bed mm. and then you seal one unit against the other and you create your tunnel and so you remember Clever, right? them seeing all that stuff doing all that stuff i wasn't i wasn't involved in it right okay. but but as i said the, the jack-up barge was a feature of the harbour at that time. You know, you saw it sort of marching across. So the 70s in Hong Kong, like 70s 
for me anyway, looking back, reading, and from what I hear, everyone always felt kind of like the golden age of Hong Kong. I always like for cinema, for development, for everything. It just kind of always felt that way. Well, you've got to, I, you've I got to remember where I where I come from mm. and how I how I would view it. Sure. And I say that because I go to Hong Kong in 1978. Mm-hmm. I've never I've never experienced anything quite like it. Mm. So, and I've not grown up there. So all I see is and I, and the experience is this this wonderful city. Uh, with wonderful surrounding parkland, you know, out into the New Territories, um, a lot of Hong Kong Island, um, all the way down to um, Sheko and places like that. It was a marvellous place. But, of course, there was no development at that time on the Chinese side. So you could go to the border and you'd look across to Shenzhen and there was nothing there, absolutely nothing. You know how that's changed so much. Now. I know how that's changed. Um, it was ridiculous. I was um, I was uh, in Shenzhen a few years ago. I was doing a, I was working on a video. I was, I was yes, I was working on a film in in Shenzhen, and uh, we're in an office building in there. And you know, once you cross the border, instantly the air quality is totally different. In Shenzhen now, it's mm. unrecognizable. Mm. But I remember being on the Shenzhen side in an office building on the thirtieth floor, looking out, looking towards the Hong Kong side. So looking towards uh, Lo Wu and just feeling like, wow, that's the Shire. And then, <laughs> and then, and then you look around at the air you and you're like, explain you're like, that one. And you look around. The Shire. You, <laughs> the Shire. Like J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, this, yeah. this green. Oh, it, I see. That it Shire. Looked, it looked green, rolling. Like, you know, you just, so you just saw grass, the air, the yeah. sky looked bluer. Yeah. And, you know, and I looked around where I was and I looked out on the Shenzhen side and it was like, this is Mordor. And of course... <laughs> At that time, in 1978, it was the time when illegal immigration was rife. So people from China were coming in? or okay. So we had, um, uh, there was a closed border area. So a double double fence between the fences was called the closed border area, which was patrolled. It's like no man's land kind of. Like no man's land. Although northeast New Territories was Chateau Coq, which was a little town Mm. within within the closed border area. And in my later years in Hong Kong, I worked on the redevelopment of Chateau Kok, which was one of the most interesting little projects I've, I've ever worked on. Like from there, you can actually see Shenzhen on one side and there's a river well, along one side. Yeah, well, you just walk there. Yeah, okay. Chateau Kok is, mm. is effectively part of a, a Chinese town, if you like. But it's technically under but Hong Kong, but it's... Yeah, so let's go. Let's go back to this because you went there as an engineer. Yeah. What kind of engineering work? What kind of projects did you do then when you got there? I, I was employed by a company called Mitchell McFarlane. Okay. They were. Their their prime, their prime client was Hong Kong Land. Okay. And the project I was employed to work on uh, was Chifu Fayun, at Pok Fulham. Okay. And I worked on that for two years until, uh, well, until the sort of the last of the towers was underway. Um, and then I went to, I joined another company where I worked on um, uh, Ho Chung Marina. Okay. Uh, near Sai Kung, which was another very interesting project. Just so you know, Chief of Ayun is still there. And I have a friend who grew up in Chifu Fayun. Like, so he talks about it. Oh, it's the best. I loved it. And, but he talked about it. So it's just... It's just Has he, me to, does he use a swimming pool? I, I, I'll ask him. But ask what, him. Is, is there a story about that? Was that, your, was that your crowning achievement or something? Or was there something well, it was, about it was, that? Well, it was, it was something I, I designed. Um, but it was a... No, it's not a funny story. But um, my boss didn't, didn't believe. He, he, he couldn't accept the way I designed it. Why not? Why not? Well, he, even though I sort of modelled it and, and explained how I was, I was considering the structure working, he said, oh, no, let's be safe. Let's, you know, put twice as much concrete in. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which, in my opinion, is, is not an engineering answer. <laughs> just double it, yeah? Yeah, just double <laughs> it. Yeah. Just double it. Because any, any fool could double it. 
but but that was a. I mean, concrete was concrete was the big material. Mm. It, it always has been in Hong Kong. Still is. I was going to yeah. say still well, is. Still is. Yeah. But everything was built of concrete, and even even the little. Um, I can't really describe them. Like little parasol roofs over seating areas. The parasol on, roofs on on the um, commercial centre at Chifufain. Is it like the? They it, they were concrete. Is it like is it like 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 fabric fabric canvas now that's no. stretched over or is no no it, it's or? concrete. It, but they were. They, I seem to remember them being sort of like okay sloping sort of, sort of like um, yeah, steep, steep yes okay yes. But it always amazed me to come to Hong Kong and and to find that. Almost everything was built in concrete, irrespective. <laughs> it's, it's like it, it's shading. It doesn't need to be concrete. It can be anything lighter. Yeah, but that the, the other thing was, everything was covered in mosaic tiles. Oh gosh! <laughs> <laughs> even even the old village houses. So when I was a kid, yeah. my aunt like the villa. Like, everything was all, mosaic tiles. They're like I don't know what is that half an inch by half an inch yeah. tiles or something, and they were just everything was just tiles. I, I just thought, what a pain in the ass well, to have to put all that together. Well. well you, you, <laughs> They came in sheets, which mm. were probably, I don't know, a foot by foot, 300 mil by 300 mil. I remember going to site one day, and there, were, uh, there was a group of old ladies. Obviously, some of these, these sheets had been damaged, and they were sticking back on the tiles. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, they still do. Because so, even just on the outside of a lot of the buildings, even in like throughout Hong Kong, so now if you look, you go around. So Bel Air Gardens in Sha Tin yeah, area yeah. is a great example. It's like yeah. brown. And when it was built, it was yeah. originally sort of this sort of like yeah. uh, very middle, upper class. Yeah. Well, you know, ooh, you want to come here. We have a pool. We have a clubhouse. Bah, bah, bah. And of course now it's, you know, it's, it's deteriorated significantly. But one of the things you notice is if you, look, if you look on some of the walls, it's super patchy. And they can't get the same color anymore. No. So they they put different. But it weathers. Yes, it, it weathers. And so and so it just looks really really. But I, but I must tell you I must tell you a couple of other things about construction at that time. There were two outstanding things. One was the use of bamboo scaffolding, and the other was the construction of hand dug caissons, which, at that time, were dug normally by a husband and wife team. Can you can you explain? Hold on one second. Can you explain what that? Um, I'm just going to close the door. Well, a hand dug caisson is a pile, and a pile is a, is a means of transferring load from a, a building down to good ground. So you you there are all sorts of means of doing it, but the hand dug caisson was very suitable for Hong Kong because normally you'd go down to rock. Almost in every case, you'd go down to rock. And because you're putting high-rise, high small-area buildings down onto a foundation, you need a big pile, which then needs to go down to rock to properly support it all. The construction of a hand-dug caisson was you had a man with a jackhammer. He would jackhammer down into the ground, and then he would cast a concrete ring to protect himself. And then he'd undermine that, go down again with his jackhammer, cast another concrete ring, and down and down and down. His wife worked from the top. She would, she would be working a winch to remove spoil. And then when they had a break for lunch, she'd cook the lunch. So spoil is the, is the stuff It's the material that, you take out. Right, okay. Yeah. And then she... But, but it was common. Do you mean so... Uh, it was husband a very, and wife very team. husband and wife team. But... Today, it would be a health and safety nightmare. Well, to be honest, like we didn't, and and you mentioned bamboo scaffolding. So for those that don't know, Hong Kong is like one of the construction things that they're famous for is using bamboo scaffolding, yep. right, to build and construct and perform other various, uh, rep, rep, you know, repair work or whatever on the outer walls yep. of buildings. Yep. I. It wasn't until this century that I recall anyone any construction worker on a scaffolding ever using a harness i don't actually recall anyone ever using a harness i don't think it was even thought about <laughs> right it just never no. was a thing and they were all famous i mean they're just so nimble the only concession that the bamboo scaffolder has made to modernity is the use of plastic ties because when i first went there it was just a raffia 
I'm sorry, a plastic tie. What's a raffia? Well, raffia is is like a, a grass. Mm. So they use that sorry. Oh, to oh, tie yes. to tie the the, the 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 various sections of the the, the bamboo together. But today, they use plastic. It's like that. Black, and that's the only. <laughs> the black thick nylon that's right. thingy, right? That's right. No, but now like it's more strict. Yeah. Now you see them with helmets yeah. on. You see them wearing the the reflectors on and whatnot. But yeah, it was a thing. It's funny. So, my father in law, he he visited. He first visited Hong Kong also, I think, in the seventies, and. Um, you know, when my wife was going there to visit the first time to work, you know, Barry's like, oh, yeah, they use bamboo scaffolding out there. And and she's like, no, no, they don't. I'm sure they don't do that anymore. I'm sure that's not a thing. Lo and behold, first thing she yep. says back to Barry, you know, yep. like, dad, they still use bamboo. But it is actually super efficient. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I can see why, why it's a big thing. Uh, right? I mean, it makes sense. Well, I could understand it, but um, you would never get away with it here. No. No, no. It, it, it's actually it's, because it's culturally been there for so long. It's sort of grandfathered mm. in as part of practice, right? Yeah. So it's one of those things. Are there any particularly memorable projects that you've worked on? Because you, the seventies was a big phase. Seventies, eighties, huge development push, right, throughout mm. large parts of Hong Kong. So a lot of housing developments. Were there any other any other housing developments or any other projects that you worked on that were like, wow? Well, Ho Chung was interesting because. It wasn't only housing, it was the reclamation of, as well. And part of the, the lease on that piece of land was that we had to clean up the Ho-Chung River. And at that time, there were dye factories and all sorts of things, pig farms. So, um, Can you explain we, a bit, Andrew, where, where, where Ho-Chung is and, and what that area was kind, what kind of looked like? Well, Ho-Chung is, um, is on an inlet on the uh, east side of Hong Kong in the New Territories. Uh, it's just south of Sai Kung, which is a relatively major town in the New Territories. Mm. And this was uh, high-quality development uh, on reclaimed land with uh, birthing facilities. So not only did we reclaim the land to form uh, seawall arms, two little islands... But we also had a, you know, bridges to get to the island, um, and I mean the houses were all reinforced concrete and <laughs> quite well. I mean, what else would they be made out of, you know? <laughs> but it was it was meant to be a very high quality development, and it was. But but the key thing was, which was new to Hong Kong, was the houses with moorings. Ah, so because so, so so you had a, a, a seafront house. With a with a, a mooring for a boat. So these were more luxury flats, oh, essentially. Yeah. Well, they were I mean, not flats as a house, yes. Yeah. So you mentioned landfill. Did you sort of see this sort of rapid filling up of? I did. I did, and I was part. I was part of the team which worked on the um, the West Kowloon reclamation, which which in you know apart from the airport platform. The West, Kowloon, the West Kowloon Reclamation was probably one of the biggest areas reclaimed in, in Hong Kong. What was it originally built for? Was it just as a, let's create this large promenade that can be developed oh, later? Oh, no, 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 no. What no, was it supposed no, to be? No, 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 no. Um, the whole purpose of it was to facilitate the connection of the high-speed rail, the, the, the rail link to the airport. So you came across the two bridges down through the West Kowloon Reclamation and then into Central. Which we still haven't... Well, we, well, we have the, West, we have the yeah. Western Tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which, which, is, which, to be fair, is the fastest way to get across the yeah. island if you're in a pinch. It costs a lot of money. But, it costs more money, I should say. But, but there was yeah. also, obviously, freeing up more land for development. Um, and part of it was also... Well, my particular role was, was what was called reprovisioning. So... All those, all those, all those elements that were on the the old waterfront, we had to put them somewhere else. So whether it was a seawater intake for the MTR cooling system, or whether it was the um, the wholesale markets, there are there are enormous number of facilities which had to be moved to other locations. Uh, culturally, I mean, coming from the UK, you're going to a colony. 
at the time still a crown colony for work and uh, you know you're this young vibrant new engineer uh, were there any key any cultural things that you you recall that were very you're like oh that that was different or, or what was your impression or what what did you encounter that made you feel like oh anything sticks out in your mind coming to a colony it was the, the key thing was because you're an expat expats make friends with other expats because you're all, you're all new effectively so joining the football club things like that it sort of enhanced my life um, but I was very lucky that the companies I worked for always they were always a a very good intermingling of of local staff, expatriate staff. You know, there were outings and boat trips and you know nights out in the restaurant, which was always great, always great. But no, I can't think of anything that was, let's say, a culture shock particularly. Mm. I think I think certainly the um, the density of population right. was a bit of a shock, but you know. It didn't. It didn't affect me in any particular way. I mean, it was just that's what it was, and you know, I could go to the, the club or get on a boat and get away from everybody. Right. It was just something that you just noticed that oh, wow, yeah. there are a lot of people living yeah. closely together in yeah. smaller yeah. smaller spaces. That yeah. was essentially. Yeah. You mentioned something really interesting that that I, I, I it makes a lot of sense that you know sometimes people assume that expats gather or they expats like to hang with other expats because they're expats. When in, in fact, what, it act, what a big part of it actually is, is they've been uprooted to go to a new place and they need to build a community, to belong to a part of a community. And of course, language is the usual, is a, is a huge barrier to entry. And it makes sense that that's, that's one reason why a lot of expats hang out together. And it's not just because, you know, ah, oh, you're also from another, I mean, that's part of it too. Oh, you're also well, from Western, oh, you're also from here. Well, yes. So therefore it makes but, sense. But, but, I mean... Don't make it sound as though it's an exclusive club. Oh no, and, and that's the, sort the, of what I'm the other thing. The I other mean, thing though. about it is that uh, certainly in, in at that time, um, Chinese people didn't you know they didn't play rugby. They they played football a lot of fo- a lot of footballing, but you know there was a commonality in in, um, in so many of the expats because they gravitated towards the sports clubs because. They wanted to play football. Mm. They wanted to go sailing, mm. um, and so you you were you were thrown into that, you know, the expatriate system, really. That milieu. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I was very lucky, uh, as I said to you, the, the, the companies I worked for um, were very social-minded mm. and very conscious of of you know bringing everybody together. But I was very lucky to have uh, three very good Chinese friends who I sailed with. And we had the most marvellous time sailing together. And the, the four of us just, we hit it off and it was great. And we, we sort of, you know, our enjoyment of sailing was reflected in the results we had. But anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> I, well, I was going to go there. I was going to hear about this, this well, international was, dream team. Well, I was lucky. I was lucky. Um, I, I, I sailed with a guy called uh, Peter Wong. Okay. Who was a, a grandmaster windsurfer. Okay. A guy called Harry Young, who was a sailmaker with uh, Neil Pride. Um, and the other guy was an insurance broker. <laughs> Abao was his name. <laughs> he was rather rotund. Gotcha, say. gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. You know, he was robust. You, you can picture it. Uh, yes, okay. You can picture enough. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Did you find making friends within the local? So you found making friends relatively easy then, I guess, through the context of work and. Yeah, when I first went there, I, I was very lonely. Mm. Uh, Sarah and Mark. You know, remember I mentioned my brother and sister, my sister and brother-in-law. Mm. They lived in um, Clearwater Bay. Mm. Okay. I, my flat was in Happy Valley. Okay. So we were miles apart. Mark and I both were members of the football club, but my first um, summer in Hong Kong was I was very lonely. Uh, I worked for a small firm. Most of the expats were married. 
Um, I wasn't a member of the football club. And I just... I, I almost thought it was going to be a turning point for me and I was going to come home. But then in the September, uh, I started training with the football club and I met my wife. So my whole my whole world changed sort of overnight, really. And things were much brighter. Oh, well, I, I, well, I also recall we were talking one time and you were talking about you were on the train once and there was a professor. Oh, Yes. It just when you yes. remember, it just reminded me about that. Can yeah, you? i i was um, I was on the train. It was when I was staying with my sister uh, for Christmas, nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight, and at that time it was a single line up to the border, and I thought, well, I'll have a day out. I'll take the train, and I'll go up to the border. And I was on the train, and I met this Chinese professor. He was a visiting professor, professor from. Um, uh, USA. His name was uh, Professor Fang, and we got to talking, um, and we were just very interested in each other and what we had to say and what we right. thought. And and he invited me for tea back at the Chinese U. He was at the Chinese U. Right. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. Um, anyway, I went back for tea, and I and I said to the, the good professor, I, I explained to him my I was in a bit of a dilemma at that time. I'd been offered the job. Mm. in Hong Kong but I wasn't sure whether I would take it because I just felt to go back to my job in UK and then you know literally give them a notice in and then come back out after a month I thought you know I'd always worked you know I'd always had good relationship with my employers and I didn't want to screw things up and Professor Fang said look Andrew you said let me give you a word of advice as far as your employer is concerned, it's a mere bagatelle. They'll get over your departure. But for you, it affects the rest of your life. <laughs> and he was dead right. He was dead right. Well, I mean, looking at your family and exactly. your life experience, exactly. like, I mean, it's just... It's, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, Josh. So okay, let's move on to that then, because I'm... So one thing that other than having roots in Hong Kong as a part of our yeah. our shared heritage is also, you know, your your children, like myself, are biracial, you know, mm. multiracial. What was it like? I mean, culturally, what was... I know what my life experience was like, but you guys seem to have a great life. You guys... I'm sure you guys, like all families, encounter whatever they encounter, but whether... It, it, I guess what I'm asking is, from a relationship point of view, that cultural difference was there anything there that you're comfortable sharing that was perhaps unusual or you or you you thought oh this is very different from what i would have encountered were i to marry someone from hackney or whatever <laughs> ar ar arbitrary arbitrary oh i didn't know anybody in hackney <laughs> i don't know those, fam <laughs> those famous hackney lasses yeah um well, as you know, I mean, as I've said, I, I met Ida in, um, I think it was the August of 1978. Um, and we got on fine. But, you know, I realised that Ida's background was, was very different. And she lived in a small flat with her mum and dad and siblings in Monchai. Which is extremely... In Wan Chai Road. But it's extremely common even to now. Of course, that's, that's of course. Culturally, of course. that's one of the big things that Western always always like, oh, wow, that's so different from, you know. But, you know, I used to go there for dinner and they got out, they got out the table yep. and unfolded all the chairs mm -hmm. and there was a, a plastic tablecloth and I used to sit there and sort of try and understand the Cantonese that was going on around me. And then when I wanted to use the facilities, the facilities were just a small cubby hole mm. with the shower and a toilet. And was in it, one. Is a shower... Oh, uh, okay. You know, there was no ensuite. <laughs> the, the Did it have the sliding, the accordion door? Or was it an... A, oh, yes. The plastic accordion door. Right, yes, because even now that's a thing. And, and I remember going to my grandmother's place, it was the same. Yeah. Was, was it, um, yeah. Was it, a, was it a, um, 
a private uh, private owned development or was it a uh, no it was um, they were on the fifth floor uh, say uh, so relatively low rise building in um, Wan Chai Road right um, Wan Chai Market was in in, in Wan Chai Road at that mm-hmm. time so there were meat stalls fish stalls and so super lively then yeah so really having lively. stepped out of St James's Road in Twickenham which is where you're from in, yeah, which is a suburb of uh, London, London, right? West yeah. London, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it was very different. It was very different. How'd you get along with the in-laws? Well, very sadly, um, I wouldn't say it was a prejudice as such, but I didn't really meet them for probably more than a year. Uh, I did meet Ida's sister. Um, but I never met her mother, and her mother passed away, uh, I'd say, probably a year after I'd met Ida, so the summer of 1979. Um, and so, very sadly, I never actually met her, and it's always been one of those things in my life that I look back and I think, oh, you know, I could have met her. I mean, was it just a, it was just a timing thing, though? Or it was a timing like thing, unsure? a cultural thing. Um, a hesitation to perhaps bring you home, or was there, it... there was a certain yeah, mm. but but then Ida's sister had uh, gone to Canada. Mm. Um, you know, she'd gone by herself, uh, and she she developed a very good career there. Met her husband there. He was a so, he was Canadian, like Western Canadian, or no? He's um uh, he's from a Puerto Rican extraction. Oh, okay. I guess the point is so. So the family is a, is a is a is a very very international family, particularly since Patrick has now married a, a Sri Lankan lady. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I affection, as I affectionately call him, cousin Pat. Yeah. <laughs> so Pat's the oldest. Uh, do you do you remember what it was like having children in Hong Kong during that time? I always uh, there, there were occasions when. Um, you feel people looking at you, or I felt people looking at me, and and you could see them thinking, "Oh, look at that! Look at that Guaylo! Look at that Guaylo! He's <laughs> snatched up a little Chinese girl." Um, but because we we had so many friends, so many friends who were in similar situations, um, never noticed it. Mm. You know, we never came across any any sort of prejudice or or ill will. Never. Well, you're also a really nice guy, Andrew. Like that, I think that's, that's very big, kind of you that's, No, no, but it's, I think that that goes a long way. I mean, with, with any culture, is you know, you're, you're open, you're upfront, you're you know, you're not too boisterous or loud, and you open your. I mean, that makes a huge difference in, at least from what I've experienced in terms of bridging culture. Thank you, Josh. I, well, no, it's, it's just true. Because I would imagine that it's the same for... Because like, I, I I struggle with it just because I'm... Like, my culture is all over the place. And so it's just... And not that I need a culture to anchor who I am necessarily, but it does it does inform who I am. And so... Which is a big reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I want to hear how people have experienced things and hmm. through culture and where they're from and meeting new cultures and we're in an increasingly international world and so this is a big part of how we there's this real very very human element that mm. we all need to contend with and it's just good to hear how how different people are well navigating i mean one thing I, I would like to say to you is that i mean obviously we met alex before before we met you that's the missus yeah and then but once we'd met you with alex in hong kong i mean we just loved you Oh, we, we, we took you into our family and I have to say that I enjoy your company so much that I would quite happily come to Hong Kong to see you and Alex, even if we didn't have any relatives there. But you are also one of the reasons why I would enjoy going back to Hong Kong. Yeah, our door's always open. Thank you. you. Want. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Please. Yes. Thank you. I still remember the first time. Oh, we're gonna be we're gonna be crying, guys. Yeah. I wouldn't mind. It's time for a cup of coffee, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want a cup of coffee? Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. want to take a break? All right. Well, all right, we'll take a quick break then. Good stuff, Josh. Do you reckon you can you couldn't live there today? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we're up and running, but whatever. 
<clears throat> I mean, no, but it, it, it's it's casual. So enjoy your coffee whenever. Just put your mic down. It's no problem. Uh, but you, you're saying you, you struggle to enjoy it now today. Well, you you remember when we were last back? We came back for your wedding. Right. We came back to celebrate Patrick and Yanni's wedding. Right. With Ida's family. Hang on a second. Let me just take a look real quickly. Ah, sorry, it wasn't turned on. Now it's on. Ah, <laughs> we lost about two minutes there. Okay, sorry. Where were we? Oh, so we were talking. Okay, all right. Let's come back to this. We we were we were talking about modern Hong Kong. Yeah, about modernity. We were talking about how last year I went back with the family for three weeks to celebrate your wedding and Patrick and Yanni's wedding with right. with Ida's family. The the trip was a great success. It was a great success because there were two nice weddings, two very enjoyable weddings. We met new people, interesting people. Um, I was particularly interested to meet the young folk at your wedding. Ah. Particularly interested. Because, because I could talk to people who were doing the same thing as I did 40 years ago. But the whole, the whole aspect of their lives had changed. From, from my situation where I was employed as an expat. They are expatriates, but they are, they are employed locally. Right, and so some, you get both. You get some that are, and some, aren't, some yeah. are that move there and then, and then are hired yeah. as a local. Which is a, and there are some hybrid situations as well, where it's like, oh, but you lived here already, so we'll hire you on an expat-esque salary, but you won't get the expat-esque benefits, which is another thing. So. But yeah, I mean, there's still some of that, but it's... But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. We were going on, we were developing that conversation to talk about how I found Hong Kong. Yeah, well, you were saying that you felt we, there was we, a bit, bit of... You yeah. Said, you said rudeness, well, you used a phrase. Well, let me, let me, rudeness had settled in. Yeah, let, 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 let me... Um, go on, go let, on. Let me explain a couple of things. Over the years, since I came back... I have been to Hong Kong regularly. I either went on business or I went because of family. Uh, so you could say that at least at least every four years I've been back to Hong Kong. So since, since 1995, I've seen it develop. I, so I've experienced the, you know, what happened since the transition in 1997 and I've seen the explosion what I would call an explosion of development since then um, by the way 1997 was the year that Hong Kong was handed back over uh, to China from from Britain and it was a colony for a hundred years for Hong Kong that's right but don't forget the lease was in more than one part correct correct so you, was the you, yeah, so you had the boundary street exactly, was, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so. but you, even though those leases were signed at different times and came up at different times, there would have been no point in handing over Hong Kong and leaving the NT still with the with with the British. Right. So obviously, convenience stated, and, and it was obvious, right. handed all over together. Right. Indeed. But that was negotiated by Margaret Thatcher, who, um, I mean, confidence in Hong Kong went down after Margaret Thatcher's. Visit in what would it have been something like 1983, I suppose it was. I recall. It's funny you mentioned that. I was I was I was working with a. Um, I was in the U.S. at the time, and I was working with someone, uh, some an older gentleman from Hong Kong, and he, and we talked a bit about Hong. We had we were talking one. It was after work one day, and we were having some drinks, and we were talking about what Hong Kong used to be like, and you know, I was always curious about what was it like then, what was it like then, and I asked him, and he mentioned Thatcher, and he was like. He, he said something, he's like, the element of misogyny. And he was saying that, you know, they didn't like, the Chinese didn't like a woman coming in, having this discussion. Mm. I can understand that. Whatever. I can and I mean, understand. I wasn't there, I didn't know. And I, I honestly, I, I didn't try to research it further. But he mentioned, he was like, this was something. It's like, he's like, to us, it's common knowledge that it, it, it didn't, it didn't, this didn't sit well in the 80s. So we're talking, what, 30, 30, some, 30 plus years ago? Mm. Almost forty years ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, I lost my job. Uh, when would that have been? Nineteen eighty-three, eighty-four. It would oh. have been eighty-three. 
It would be in 1983. Patrick was born in 1984. Mm. And I lost my job. Uh, and I think it would have been something like maybe the April of 1984. Uh, I went on a hockey trip with the Hong Kong Football Club. So I was, I was literally unemployed in Hong Kong for two weeks. I came back. And I was immediately re-employed by um, another much larger company. So I was very lucky. I was very lucky in terms of employment in Hong Kong. But but you're saying that it coincided with Thatcher's visit. It was an aftermath of Thatcher's visit. You know, there was a downturn in building and construction in Hong Kong. Was it just because people there was a lack of certainty? Is that there was a lack of certainty. So it was like the market and uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. Which I mean, I I hate to make this the segue for it, but you know, Brexit has also sort of, again, it's the uncertainty, that's caused the market to have a little bit of a. We don't have to get into it if you don't want if you don't want to, Andrew. But it's well, just because it just I'd like to happening at least, right now. Yeah. Uh, the the comparison is not quite right. No, it's not. It's not it's, analogous. The only no, thing I'm bringing up it, is the fact that there was uncertainty in the market. Of, uh, of 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 something perhaps belonging to something or someone or a group, and then there might it might no longer be the case, yeah. and what that's going to look yeah. like, yeah. and that causes uncertainty. That that's the only analogous part yeah. of this. I, I'm not. It's not directly analogous. I understand but that. But in terms of Hong Kong's history, it was a mere blip. Oh, for sure. It you know, but there was I, I was without a job. My wife was expecting our first child, um, so it was not a great time to be. You know, without without a job in Hong Kong, but um, as I say, I was very lucky. And although people decry things that are commonly called the um, uh, the old pals act or you know the old school tie and all that sort of thing, so like, whereby like boys club whereby, kind of thing? yeah, whereby you're offered a job based on someone who knows you. That's and, the thing, and and. That's- yeah. And in fact, I have to admit that um, the two successive jobs I had in Hong Kong were through people who knew me, rather than, you know, applying for jobs. That, uh, can I just say that's still very much the case now? Yeah. I mean, and it's. But do you think that that's so different out here? Like, do you think people don't get introduced to jobs via people? That still happens. It still happens, but I mean. You know, companies these days have to be fair. They have to be seen to be advertising posts mm. to a broad spectrum of potential employees. Instead of saying, "Hey," instead of saying, "I know this guy," meet I me know. down at the football club bar <laughs> and have a chat. But you know what? That's still where lot, most deals are done in the pub. I, I can believe in the media. I can and, believe. And also, I mean, and culturally, also in in Hong Kong and China, Greater China, that's still a big thing. Go out for a few drinks, have some chat. I was talking with with um with someone else about this. Um, someone else I'm going to have on the podcast as well. Um, you know, just the idea of of drinking as a way of bonding and also closing deals and solidifying relationships, mm. as it were. Mm. You know, it's, it's very very common. Any particular pubs you enjoyed haunting? Then any any haunts that you had? Uh, Back in the day, that might still might, that might still exist. Well, hopefully, there were several. There was a, a bar called Rumors um, in Causeway Bay. As in, I've got a rumor to tell you. Yeah, uh, that's no longer there. One of the first pubs I ever went into was the Bull and Bear in Central, uh, and I was thrown out of the Bull and Bear <laughs> very ignominiously on Christmas. But anyway, we won't go there. Oh, we will go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but another pub that I did enjoy was um, uh, Mad Dogs. Mad Dogs, which is up on, uh, was it Wyndham Street? Is it still there? I don't I, I know. I don't recall this. I don't recall On the Wanch. The Wanch is still there. Was it the still there? The Wanch is still there. It was yeah. the same spot. It's been there for it's, since... It, well, it's been there... Well, it must have been there for thirty years, but last time I have friends that still play. I have friends that play that bar. Well, I, I went in there mm-hmm. and I asked if anybody knew Howard Mackay, who was the, the, the first owner. Um, but Howard was long gone. Sure, long, long gone. Um, 
you know the the, the you know Dickens Bar. Yeah. Oh, the there. Dickens Bar. That's still there. That's in the um, yeah the base of the Excelsior Excelsior Hotel Causeway yeah. Bay. That's yeah. right. Right right by the uh, the yacht not far from the yacht club, mm. I guess. Yeah. Well, the Dickens Bar was a was a uh, haunt which a friend of mine and I used to go every Tuesday night um, for years and years and years. Every Tuesday night we'd go there um, and we'd have a few beers. But it was a very nice place to go. There were no TVs then, of course. I mean, they've right. got sports TVs and God knows what. There's so much of that now. Mm. So much of that now. I mean, I will say this. I think sport has always had a strong foothold in Hong Kong, especially football. Mm. And I always found it interesting. So I, so the Euros are going on. Um, we won't talk about England's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we won't go there today. We won't go. We won't go there today. But but what the point? <clears throat> excuse me. The point I was going to going to make there was I, growing up as a child, I always supported Italy, like mm-hmm. in the World Cups. That was mm-hmm. just the thing mm-hmm. I supported Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've discovered that throughout Hong Kong, like everyone kind of supports a, a different country. Whereas here, you know, you go around England's playing. Yeah. If you're Eng- English, England. But in Hong Kong, we didn't really have that quite no, in the same way. No, no. I mean, when it got interesting this year, though, because um, Hong Kong was playing China, they were vying for an opportunity, 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 excuse me, to potentially be in the World Cup, and so that got really excited. The city got very excited about it. But just in general, like in terms of actually support, like sovereignty or or um, allegiance, I should say, it was quite open. You know. Well, in in. Uh in, in the early years, my brother-in-law was playing for Hong Kong Football Club first team. So he was playing in the top echelon of football in Hong Kong. But because they were amateurs right. um, and the likes of Seiko, Happy Valley, uh, I can't remember the others, but, but there were, you know, there were Chinese professional sides. Right. Um, they every year they came up and then were demoted, promoted, demoted, promoted, and, and it went on just like that. They were too good for the second division, not quite good enough for the first. But interestingly, those teams at that time, the likes of Seiko, they employed um, a Scottish player, Derek Curry, Hugh McCrory played for them, um, uh, and there, there were some quite well-known professional elder statesman from the football uh, first division at that time. Charlie George came out and I think I can't remember his name but there was a black player, one of the first black players in the, in the, in the first division. Played for West Ham. Clyde Best his name was. Okay. I think he came out for a short while. To play in well, Hong Kong. Really? Yeah. Yep. Wow. This is all in this, this is all in the eighties then. Uh, well, certainly there was. I remember another guy. I can picture him. I can't remember his name, but he was one of the first professionals, which would have probably been maybe mid seventies. You know, the Chinese clubs, the likes of Seiko or whatever, would bring out, you know, just a sort of a, uh, an expatriate player for a couple of years. It was. I mean, and they've started to invest more now in general um, yeah. for for the sports because uh, uh, it's also a great way to make money now as well, right? There's, it's an, there's an economic component to it as well, right? That the rugby sevens earn a lot. Well, from, that you know, that must have been the biggest, biggest, brightest idea that Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank must have ever had, because they were kicked off at the football club in the old concrete stadium in Happy Valley. Um, can, can you actually before we get to that? Can can you t- talk a bit about the football club? Because how it was then and how to join then and how it is now is quite different. Well, when I joined in uh, nineteen seventy eight, my joining fee I think was seven hundred and fifty dollars Hong Kong dollars. Hong Kong dollars. Uh, the exchange rate at that time was about eight to the pound. Um, okay. So it's about a hundred, what, less than a hundred pound? Yep. 
at the time. Yeah. So even for inflation, like when I still, it, it still, was, still, it was very, still a very, very, very reasonable, good buy. Yeah. And of course, it was on the um, God, the God. edge of the the Happy Valley Racecourse, but it it Sports Road went through went went between Hong Kong Football Club and the racecourse. Okay. And then next to um, next to the football club was Craigengar Cricket Club. Mm. But the football club at that time, there was a nice little bar with a with a restaurant above, a pool area, a bowling green, um, and then this very sort of white elephantish concrete grandstand, um, which you know you looked at and thought, well, why did they build that? V- I mean, very very rarely were were there any major events there. Uh, I remember Rod Stewart coming there. To perform or just perform. having a drink? No, to perform. Oh. I remember seeing him sort of kicking a ball about. Uh, but it was an odd stadium. Um, and I remember when the, when I... when Because I, the sevens were very popular, but, even, but not mm. that popular. Right. And I remember one year, the pitch flooding. And the Fijians and, I mean, all the big... I mean, the big names were all there. The only ones that weren't there, England never came. But it was all Pacific Rim teams, generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was your Fiji, it was um, Western Samoa, it was Australia, New Zealand. They were all there. And the big names, Campese, Michael Liner, the Ella Brothers, all those very big names from Australia, um, Fiji, they were all there. And then the football club. How much is it to join the football club now? I have no idea. I don't. I don't care anymore. <laughs> well, you don't have I, to though. I, you, you, you have a lifetime. You, Your membership you know, is solidified. You, you know, really, I, I, I made the best investment of my life. <laughs> I spent two hundred and fifty dollars buying life absent membership. So I go there every, every time I go back. I sign on in, and I can, you know, I can do whatever a member does. Ah. For I think I think they charge me ten dollars a day. <laughs> I, 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 I think you'll be and fine. And that was one of the finest investments I've ever made. I reckon you'll be all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but you were saying HSBC, so Hong Kong Shanghai Bank Corporation, made a one of the one of the best ideas was the Hong Kong developing this yeah, rugby yeah. sevens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's such a major. Every year, we all the ad, we we know that there's the adverts are going to be coming out, and there's going to be carnage in Wan Chai just because. That's like so. Because obviously, that's a major drinking area. It's also kind of the red light district ish, which is, by the way, Wan Chai is one of the strangest red light districts I've ever walked through. Uh, not that I've walked through many, but I've been to like Hamburg or whatever, and it's very obvious that it's a red light district. But Wan Chai is just this sort of, or Lockhart Road, I guess, right? You have all these pubs, you have all these expats hanging out certain pubs, then you have these little strip clubs sprinkled throughout. Yep. I just always found it really bizarre. I like, I really love. It's super charming. I love Wan Chai in general, just as a, as an exp- as an experience. Like it's pretty crazy. It's it's it's. But it, I just I don't know. Just comment comment on how odd that as red light district was. But I'm sure it has roots further back because I know well, it's, it's close to the shore. The shore leaf. Like, you see, people come we, up and stuff. Well, that's right. When when I first arrived in Hong Kong, um, <clears throat> soon after the cessation of the Vietnamese War. And so it was an R and R destination for, for Americans for the American. Yeah, yeah. I think we still they still come up on shore leave. We've had, but even so, occasionally. I suppose you know at that time, of course, there was there was all sorts of uh, troops based in Hong Kong. RAF personnel were based in Hong Kong. The Royal Navy was based in Hong Kong. So there was a lot of uh, military personnel in Hong Kong at that time. Yeah, seventies, eighties. Mm. Yeah. So for anyone now making this, the decision of wanting to travel something new, any, any, what would you say, what, what would you, any advice you'd give to these people, these young people, or even not so young people that want to try, go elsewhere? Any thoughts and tips to navigate that world, culture, how to achieve, meet people, whatever? I think in this life you have to be adventurous. Um, I've... I've met all sorts of people in, in my lifetime and uh, 
the more interesting people are those who've broadened their horizons and set themselves new goals. The guy who sat in um, a government office in Whitehall all his life is not a desperately interesting man to talk to. Um, in terms of encouraging people to go abroad, yes, of course I would do that. Of course I would do that. I would still encourage people to go to Hong Kong. I think it's a great place. And my judgment is merely based now on those people I've met in Hong Kong recently, mm. those young people who've gone there and are having a wonderful time and enjoying their, their, their situation. And those are the people I base that on. If, if you were to ask me, would I go back? Of course I wouldn't go back, no. Mm. I mean, I love the life in rainy Shropshire. <laughs> As do I. Can I just say, I've been back for a few days. It is the most relaxed I've relaxed I've been in about three months, four yep. months. Just the the English. Yes, I mean, yes, it's rainy. Yes, it's whatever. But it's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful out here in the Shropshire Hills. I I love it. But life is always about balance, isn't it? So. But I I, I can get my injection of um, Hong Kong. Every couple of years. Yes. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, as, as you should. Yeah. As you should. And of as course. Should and I, I, come back and I will. I will always do that. I will always do that. It's important for my family. Right. Particularly my wife. Um, so I recognize that and we'll spend time in Hong Kong. Whether or not, you know, I particularly enjoy it or whether or not I'm thinking to myself, wow, a little jeet in France would have suited me better. <laughs> With your gabardine mac and tweed <laughs> yeah. suitcase making your way out there. <laughs> you better explain that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we were talking. So this is, um, so uh, Andrew and I were talking a couple of days ago and we were talking about, so Andrew has a friend named Christian. Yeah. Who is a pen pal. For those of you that remember what a pen pal is, uh, from when Andrew was what, 13, 14? From you well, 11? From 11. From 11. From 11. From the age of 11, they've been pen pals. So for quite a long time, we won't go into too many details about the years, right? Yep. And, that, and that's your relationship with Christian. And in fact, I met Christian at uh, Patrick's wedding. So Andrew's son, Patrick, I met, I met Christian. I mean, it's amazing. You, your friendship has carried on for so long. But about this, um, now that I've set the scene for the relationship, I'll let Andrew explain about his tweed suitcase and <laughs> gabardine mac, which is just... I, I did a double take when I heard him say that. <laughs> I, I didn't realize the impact that would have on Josh, actually. But uh, <laughs> I first went to Paris when I was 14. And at that time, my parents put me on, a, on what was called the boat train. And I left London, went across on the boat to Calais, got back on the train, finished up in Gare du Nord. And um, I was wearing, a, I remember quite plainly, a gabardine mac. And I got a... Um, uh, a tweed suitcase. <laughs> awesome. How, quintessent, how quintessential and just marvellous. I want to but see But you this. have to remember that was, uh, I don't know, 1960 maybe? Yeah, 1960. All that is now back. Fashion, fashion. fashion has changed. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's gone back that. I mean, that now can fetch you a hefty price in the right parts of London or Brooklyn or whatever. People will pay good money for that. <laughs> but I mean th there's a there's a lesson there I mean how important friendships are as I say Christian Christian and I go back 11 years um, and there was a lean period in our um, contact when I was in Hong Kong but he he contacted my mother um, and you know our friendship kicked off again and he's a he was a village doctor, so he he was the most delightful person to visit. You know, she went and stayed with Christian. You know, it was just a wonderful experience in this small village on the bank of the the, the Loire near uh, Amboise. It was, but and everyone just knew that wonderful oh, country. You know, friend. wonderful chateau country. Yes. Ah. <laughs> and I still don't mind going down to see him. I think I think we've done I think we've done all right. I think we've done very well. I think we've done very well. Yeah. Andrew, I don't know what we're going to talk about now. No. 
Uh, d- don't worry, next, don't next worry. Time, next time we're sharing a pint, Josh, we're going to be staring into our beer. Uh, <laughs> uh, unlikely, Andrew. I think that's unlikely. <laughs> I, I, I think we'll finally figure out what to talk about next. Um, anyway, Andrew, thanks for having me over. Thanks for My pleasure, doing Josh. this. Much appreciated. <laughs> Always good to Best of you, likewise. Thanks. Take care. So there you go, guys. That's the uh, that's the podcast. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it, guys. Um, real quick, let's see what else we got. Um, dates, yes, I will be uh, actually this weekend performing at the JCCAC Black Box Theater. Uh, the dates are July 29th, thirtieth, and thirty first. It's a play. It's a fringe play. It's actually in Cantonese. So. For those of you that haven't seen me perform in Cantonese and want to see what that's about, uh, feel free to support. If you're available, check it out. Thank you for that. Other dates in September, I will be in Japan. I will be playing the No Limit Festival 2016 in Tokyo. Um, Exact date and time uh, and venue to be announced. Uh, We're just sort of organizing that right now, but I'm excited. It's been years since I've been to Japan, and I'm glad to go back to perform, so stay tuned for that stuff. Again, guys, thanks for listening to the podcast, and uh, what else? Oh, and hopefully next time we'll talk about how he got uh, how he got kicked out of the pub that Christmas evening. Anyway, guys, thanks a lot. Have a kick-ass week, and I will catch y'all later.